Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Happy Friday, wherever you are. Uh, I hope you're having a wonderful day and you've had a great week. I have had a busy one, but I've been excited all week to talk to my two panelists as we unpack the biggest stories of the week and debate them. First off, we have Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. And we are joined by Michael Cook, who is the Chair of Canada's Journalist for Human Rights and also the former Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Star. Ryan and Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, and I've been excited to talk to you all week, too. (laughs) There you go. Great to be here. I've had to put my wordle aside for the next hour. So here we go. How, how How many lines did it take you to get it this time? I haven't got it. I'm at four. I'm struggling. Oh, I've, I got it in four today. Just letting you know, you got to beat well, that. Well, that's a high five to you. All right. Well, I have not. <laughs> I have not attempted it yet, gentlemen. So I will. Uh, I will let you know on our our secret chat that we have during the show uh, <laughs> after where how I get to it. Um, so big stories this week. Big one, obviously, is the budget, and we're going to be unpacking elements of it throughout the show because. Well, it's in Ottawa. Guess what? It means lots for your bottom line. It means lots for your tax time, and it means it changes what you can and cannot afford. Speaking of things you can afford, Ottawa has decided it's got the keys to solve the housing crisis, or at least that's what they hope you think out of yesterday. The Trudeau Liberals announced they're spending $10 billion. That's right, $10 billion to do it. Here's Minister Christopher Freeland. At a time when our chief economic problem is that there is too much demand chasing too little supply, this set of people-centered policies provides exactly what Canada needs right now. So what did they announce? Well, settle in. Here's the list. Uh, announcing They've got a first-time buyer's tax-free home savings account. So it's basically like a TFSA of up to $40,000. That's on top of what you can do with your RSP. But that assumes you have the money to put into either of those entities in the first place, which a lot of young people don't. Um, they've also doubled the first-time home buyer's tax credit from $750 bucks to $1,500. Um, there's $2.9 billion for affordable housing. That includes 4,300 new units for low-income Canadians. And this one really has me scratching my head. A $500 one-time payment for those facing housing affordability challenges. They've set up a window, an envelope of about $475 million. They haven't given us any other explanation of what they're doing with it, if it's being means tested. So some of you may be getting $500 if it's hard for you to afford housing. We don't know how they're going to measure it. Um, there's also a home reno tax credit. Um, it now goes up to $7,500 for secondary suites. So let's say you want grandma to come live with you or your parents, or you have no choice and they have to come live with you and you're renovating, you can get some money back. Um, a big ban on foreign buyers of property for up to two years. And they're going after housing flippers. So if you sell a residential property within a year of owning it, you'll see those profits taxed as a business. Of course, unless it's for personal reasons like divorce, a new job, or baby, which means you're going to have to talk to CRA about all those things, which should be fun. Um, what it doesn't do for my assessment is also what I think the provincial government here in Ontario failed to do recently with their home, with their big you know, housing affordability plan, is deal with the issue of supply for average Canadians. Um, like a lot of my friends who frankly talked to me and look at this list and said, it still doesn't feel like it's going to help me afford to buy a home. Um, and that's a criticism that's been kind of leveled at the government and the budget. It's also in addition to a criticism that adding financial incentives to buy houses, like extra tax credits, to an already heated market will, well, make things more affordable by increasing demand when they're not increasing supply. This is how Finance Minister Freeland responded to that. The housing plan 
is very intentionally, overwhelmingly focused on supply-side measures. 90% of the investment in housing is about driving and increasing housing supply. Conservative interim leader Candace Bergen wasn't buying it. We're seeing a housing program announced as in typical uh, liberal fashion that will actually result in not one house built or one house purchased this year. So, Ryan, you're in Victoria. Um, BC was, I think, I mean, we all have housing crises, but yours sort of reached peak even before we had it here in the center of the universe in Toronto. Um, do you think this budget is going to make a meaningful impact to solve Canada's housing crisis? It's a yeah. You bring up Victoria and Vancouver. We've been in in this for a little while. It was neat to see it being dealt with in the federal budget as really the big focal point. It seemed of yesterday's budget from the federal government, uh, an issue that we've been screaming about here for a while, and our provincial government has been dealing with for a while as well. My overall take is, I mean, none of this can hurt. But I don't know if any of it is going to be the magic bullet that fixes everything. Uh, for instance, on the foreign buyers issue, that's something we've already seen chased here at the provincial level for a while. All of us in British Columbia, we need to make this declaration every year that we're, we, we pledge that we are not foreign investors <laughs> speculating. We, seriously, we have to do this every year. Go online, fill out a form, pledging that we're not foreign investors. Um, but also David Eby, our housing minister for B.C., came out yesterday in response to this saying, look, our information here in B.C. is that foreign buyers make up less than 2% of the market. So will this have a big impact? Who knows? Is it good politics? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, that's just one angle. The thing that I've been interested in is one of the larger piles of this money is the $4 billion to try to help cities and towns approve new housing faster. Uh, I thought that was interesting because we've been focusing on that here quite a bit. The supply being the big issue. One of the reasons homes are costing so much is that there's just not enough of them to go around. And in a place like Victoria, we keep seeing far larger population increases than we do housing starts. So that's naturally going to cause a supply and demand situation where things cost more. Uh, and how do you deal with that when you have a lot of municipalities locally that aren't always in favor of approving a lot of housing or like to keep things small in the way they are. And you've got uh, the NIMBYs, the not-my-backyard crowd, who don't want to see big developments or densification of their neighborhoods. What is that money actually going to do to solve that? I I talked to somebody yesterday who suggested it might be that federal money coming to some municipalities might start to come with strings attached, like, oh, hey, you're not approving a lot of housing. Maybe you're not going to be getting our grant money. I, I don't know if that's the way they're doing it, but I had that suggested to me yesterday. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious about that part. I think that could be, uh, for me, the thing to watch out of the federal measures on housing. And Michael, I mean, you were formerly the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. Um, that's the biggest city in the country. Uh, it also is pretty famous for um, having slow approvals of new housing developments. Um, with that eye and, and sort of Ryan's point about this, this sort of envelope of cash for cities, do you think, do you think this is going to make a, a difference in the supply side of things? Look, I'm no more qualified to to analyze, you know, the housing market and the alleged crisis, and you know, my friends down at the Legion. Uh, what 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 startled me yesterday was uh, was Minister Freeland's uh, seems to have adapted and adopted the uh, the delivery tone of, uh, of of the Prime Minister and his drama teacher where she puts a space in between each word. Uh, 
So uh, that was startling. And also, you know, I think that the reaction from Miss Bergen, you know, usually that reaction is so boringly predictable. You know, the journalists skip from podium to podium and they get the usual reaction from the usual suspects saying the same things. She had a bit more to say this time, you know, when she, when, and they all hated, of course, but when, but when she said that, now this is, a, this is an NDP budget wearing liberal underwear. Uh, and, and, and she's right. So that was a little more interesting. And guess what? The NDP loved it this time. Uh, and there's a little bit of cynicism, actually skepticism going up to cynicism for me on that. When you give $500 million or billion or whatever the number is, these numbers are just extraordinary and I can't understand it any more than anybody else. But I would want to look back at government interference. You touched on this, Amanda. Government interference in the housing market over the last 60, 70 years and look at what has been successful and why should this be successful if others haven't been? You know, we had a housing splurge, a building splurge after World War II where we built a lot of nice bungalows in green fields and that seemed to work. So I don't know if this will work. We, we have to sort of, we're trying to judge it now. And really, we have to wait three or four years, uh, you know, to see if it, to see if it comes about. It's, 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 it's very hard. And we always call it a crisis. It's always negative. You know, I've been around reading economic stories for 50 years. And nobody ever says, the economy is great. Don't worry. It's always a crisis. Um, and, you know, the unemployment record, or the unemployment rate in Canada right now, is I think it's a record low. But that's also a crisis. So maybe it's not so much a crisis. We're only looking at one side of it. I, we, I, 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 put, I, I put that before you. I, I certainly think uh, the emphasis on crisis is suits the government's needs. Um, I also think it'd be interesting to look back in the 50s and like after the war to see what was done, because certainly what we're doing now isn't working. Well, there were unimaginable scenes of devastation and murder coming out of Ukraine this week. All while Canada continues to talk a big game of support. Are we living up to what we need to do? That's next after the break. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, we are debating the five biggest stories of the week with some pretty awesome panelists. We have Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C., and Michael Cook. He's the chair of Canada's Journalists for Human Rights, and he's also the former editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. So this week, we had some horrific scenes um, from Buku, Ukraine, uh, stories of torture, uh, of murder, of rape, starvation. There were mass graves. Um, Russian soldiers forcing Ukrainians to shelter next to dead bodies. And all of that came to light as Russian soldiers withdrew from the area where they had been controlling and Ukrainian um, forces, as well as international reporters, came in to document the atrocities. The results of which have caused outrage in the international community, I think not really seen since this war began. It culminated in a variety of things, including the United Nations General Assembly voting to strip Russia from from a seat on the 47-member Human Rights Council. Here's the reading of that vote. The result of the vote is as follows. In favor, 93. Against, 24. Abstentions, 58. Draft resolution is adopted. Ukraine's foreign minister has also once again appealed to NATO for more weapons. He says support for the sanctions are good, but it's not enough. As long as uh, the West, let's put it this way, continues buying Russian gas and oil, it is supporting Ukraine with other hand, with one hand, while supporting Russia 
war machine with another hand. Ukrainian president also made an unusual public appeal on the Grammys this week. This is President Zelensky. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. Feel the silence with your music. Feel it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV. Support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come. So what has Canada been doing as a country to support Ukraine, right, and to stop these atrocities? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Um, yesterday's budget attempted to answer that. They announced an additional $500 million in military and financial aid for Ukraine. Mr. Freeland, who's been sort of leading the charge here in Canada, says its allies has imposed some of the toughest sanctions ever inflicted on a major economy, and I think she's right. But she also said the mutilated bodies we saw in Buka have shown us that turning um, Russia into economic pariah is not enough. Here's Minister Freeland. Putin and his henchmen are war criminals. The world's democracies, including our own, can be safe only once the Russian tyrant and his armies are entirely vanquished. Michael, I want to put this to you first, because I, I was talking about this earlier this week on uh, on the CBC, actually, and um, I was just the the images of what was coming out of Buka, the horrific acts, and the idea that we as Western nations just have been sending weapons, but have I think largely not been doing enough, um, horrifies me, and I think continues to show why what we're doing is like economic sanctions are not enough. This these like this man is is committing like gross war crimes, genocide, whatever you want to say. Um, do you think, from your position as chair of the Journalist for Human Rights, do you think what Canada is doing is enough? Boy, that's a. That, first of all, got, we have, as we have, you know, acknowledged the bravery of the Ukrainian people and and the suffering which they've endured and are enduring, and will endure. Is it enough? Does that bring up the question of the no-fly zone again, uh, which to me is an is a no-go because of the because of the danger of um, of this turning literally into the into the nuclear war? You know, if we're going to go eye to eye with uh, in a staring contest with Putin with his finger on the nuclear button. I think we're going to blink first. So I don't know what else we can do. We, they want more guns and ammunition. We don't have that in Canada. And, and are we going to send, um, you know, Minister Freeland said yesterday uh, an, an amazing quote in, 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 that, uh, in, in the budget. She said, Putin's invasion reminds us that our peaceful democracy depends on the defense of hard power. This should not be mistaken for pacifism. And then she went on to say that freedom is not free. And if we want peace, and here's the key word, we have to be ready to fight for it. Now, that's a WTF. What does she mean by that? Are we going to do more by sending 22-year-old Canadian soldiers from New Brunswick to fight in, in Ukraine? I don't think so. So I don't know what more means. I, I wish I did. Does it mean persuading Germany to turn that economic vice a couple of more twists and stop sending uh, blood money to Russia in exchange for Russian fuel? Uh, does it mean sending more ammunition, which they're asking for? I don't know. But it comes back to a no-fly zone, and I think it's a no-go. So a historian, and there have been plenty of historians who have commented on this, suggests that we look forward six months to a year and see where the end is. Is the end a deal? If it's a deal, can we get to that deal quicker and stop the shooting? Uh, people seem to say, the military people seem to say that Despite the incredible bravery of the Ukrainians, they can't win this. So where is the end? Where's the deal? I don't know. And 
I think that's a, I, and who knows, right? I think that's a, a good question to look at is what's the end game here and how do we, how do we get there? But I guess, you know, pulling it back even, let's say like park the Ukrainian um, piece of it, Ryan, and let's just talk even about as a NATO member, our NATO commitment, right? The government made a big deal last week um, and we talked about it on the show or two weeks ago about potentially going to put forward options to meet our NATO commitment, which is 2% of our, 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 our GDP um, spending on military. We actually, we share a significant border with Russia. <laughs> People forget about this. It's in the North. It's going to become a thing, especially in the next 10, 20, 30 years. This budget said we're going to get to 1.5. Um, right now we're sitting about 1.34, um, you know, Last year, we were 1.44 or 4.2. So to me, that's not a significant commitment. Like, Ryan, would you like to at least see more commitment to, to, to Michael's point? Like, defensive freedom is not free. We need, like, hard resources. Would you like to see more of that? Or do you think we need more of this sort of soft support, um, humanitarian work that we've been doing to date? Well, I, I think both, actually. And I think right now in this very moment, the soft support is what Canada can do. You're right. I mean, Canada is not in a position to be muscling in on a on a situation like this uh soft support is what we can do now we can help hopefully with the refugees that need a place to be coming out of this war and you know so on and so forth but no i, I think that this war is making a lot of the world uh, at least the western world uh, get a little shaken out of their complacency when it comes to stuff like that and yeah i, I think more investment in canada's armed forces particularly with a focus on the arctic uh we our navy needs more resources we need more of those uh, capabilities to operate in the north. Uh, the fighter jets are a good call. We need to get those upgraded. Finally. I mean, a lot of our a lot of our stuff is just old and out of date, and and needs those resources. And maybe now's the time to spend it. I'm glad to see that there was more money in the budget. I understand why we aren't ratcheting it up to the full. Uh, the full two percent right away. That's a big leap. At the same time, we have some pretty huge deficits already and costly challenges in front of us. So I, I get the balancing act. I'm glad that we saw what we saw. Well, Ryan, uh, Mike, talking in, in history, you know, you mentioned the fighter jets. and Canada's history most recently, certainly since the Second World War, of military procurement is laughable. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly the fighter jets that we're now going to get is also laughable. And if the Russians are going to come at us through the Arctic, they're not going to come in landing crafts. They're going to come in airplanes, I expect. We've got what, a couple of three or four dozen new planes coming? Uh, who's going to protect the Arctic? I don't think it's going to be us. It's going to be the Americans. It's going to be, it's going to be NORAD. So building up our military capability to protect the Arctic, I don't think is an issue that we need to worry about probably at all, and certainly not now. Um, That's a true. No, you make a good point. I, I feel like at least having the capability to be at the table is good. I mean, if we just turn it over completely to the Americans and say, you know what, we don't need to worry about it ourselves. I do feel like we need to be at least a partner in that effort if we want to say we have any kind of Canadian sovereignty up there at all. Yeah, I don't Russian, know. If, uh, sorry, go ahead, sorry, uh, Michael. I was going to say, I don't know if I like. We have about thirty seconds left here, but I don't know if I accept the idea that I get that. Yeah, the large force of defending that will be from the U.S. and they've got Alaska there for a reason. But I do feel like we have to be present, and the, currently our resources allocated, um, like are it's like it's embarrassing. Like I, I I really find, and from what we did in Afghanistan, which I think was you know fairly you know was above our weight. Um, I think was important. It was important for us as a country. I'm not saying we need to become like the U.S. as far as our spending. Um, but I do think even the procurement of the effort, like to your point, Michael, like our procurement of military um, equipment has been ridiculous. And some of the stuff we sent over to Ukraine, I mean, it was like decades and decades old. It was not, not necessarily what they needed at the time, that's for sure.
So the federal government has approved a massive new oil development off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's within a week of launching their new climate change plan. Hypocrisy or pragmatic government? That's next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Free for All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free for All Friday, where we talk about the biggest stories of the week in Canada and debate them all with a bang-up panel. Today we've got Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C., and Michael Cook, Chair of Canada's Journalist for Human Rights and the former Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Star. So last week we talked about this on the show, but with much fanfare, the federal government launched a $9 billion climate plan. If you're seeing billions a lot with federal things, they seem to be really spreading the money about lately, I'll be honest. Um, it had ambitious goals to meet greenhouse gas reductions, uh, including achieving a net zero economy by 2050. Um, I will on like, I'm going to set it out here. No government has ever met the targets they've put out of either political stripe in the last 20 years for these plans, but maybe they will be the first. Um, they also last week raised the carbon tax by another $10 for every ton of greenhouse gas. So that actually tacked another 2.2 cents a liter on your gas. So you're paying about 11 cents in total um, for the carbon tax. And as you know, as well, from listening to this show, a week is like dog years in the political world so while they're doing climate plans last week and talking about in the budget this week the federal government also formally approved bay du Nord offshore oil mega project off the coast of newfoundland and labrador it's a 12 billion dollar project held by a or led by a norwegian energy company and estimates are the deep water project could produce up to 200,000 barrels of crude oil a day and yield 300 or 30, yeah, 300 million in this lifetime. So what they're basically doing is drilling into the seabed about 300, 500 kilometers northeast of St. John's. Environments call this announcement a slap in the face. Um, it also comes as Canada has increased our oil production by 300 million barrels a day, in part to help offset Russia's oil boycotts. Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, a former head of Greenpeace, says green, green lighting the project was one of the hardest decisions he's ever had to make. But he said the approval process is based on independent reviews of the environmental impact. The Bay du Nord project is, if not the lowest emitting oil project in the world, it's certainly one of the, the lowest, 10 times less emissions right. than, a, than a projects in, in, but, in the but, oil sand. You're being interrupted right there. He also said the project has to meet certain conditions. Including one condition that has never been imposed on any project in Canada, which is that the project needs to be net zero by, by, by 2050. We, we, we've never asked that of, of any project proponent. Uh, there are conditions about local environmental impact, um, conditions regarding uh, security measures. Andrew Fury, who's the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, joined the Evan Solomon Show yesterday to talk about the benefits of the project. I think it's environmentally sound. I think the principles of the economics are sound. And, and frankly, given the geopolitical tensions in the world right now, this is a, a product that Europe or NATO allies and others will require during this time of transition. Now, for context, before we get into this, this is going to help solve uh, the Ukrainian crisis. This will not produce oil until 2028. So I hope by then we're out of that that issue. So I think it's certainly worth discussing. And I think, it, you know, obviously there's a significant economic impact for the country. Um, I, I personally am supportive of approving this project. I think it's the kind of development we need to see happen, especially with the um, economic promises. And, and who knows what kind of technology will be in place by 2028. But it really does 
point home to the economic, you know, the conversation we have, right, which is how do we balance economic growth with our climate obligations, especially by a liberal government and a environment minister who has been all over the place touting the need to go to a low carbon economy. So to you first, Ryan, um, do you think this decision hits the balance or do you think it is, you know, incredibly hypocritical? Well, or both, both. <laughs> I guess <laughs> yeah. uh, I I, I feel so. I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion that I'm I'm very alarmed by climate change and what seems to be the the world's inaction on it. Yes, we keep saying nice things and trying, but things keep getting worse. We keep burning more fossil fuels, and we need to stop that. And so, just I know there's that argument that the idea that we're going to be digging up, uh, drilling for more oil and, and burning more oil is just alarming if, if that's the if that's the way the world has to go. But we're Canada, we're a resource economy, and just turning it all off is, is impossible. So finding a balance where, yes, we're going to need to continue to drill for and sell fossil fuels because it's part of our economy, but can we do it in the, the, the best possible way? I guess this does strike a balance, but you're right. It's getting harder and harder for governments that are trying to say that they are conscious of climate change and environmentally friendly and want to you know help with emission reductions. It's hard to say that on one hand and then also approve big oil projects on the other hand. It's getting increasingly difficult, and you certainly heard that in in uh, in our environment minister's attempts to explain it away uh, and, and how uncomfortable he sounded while doing it in that clip you just you just played. Yeah, I was, mean, I've never heard a minister be like, this is personally really hard for me. I'm like, thank you for being personally difficult for you. <laughs> it's your job. Sorry, Michael, I cut you off there. Go ahead. No, he's so uh, holier than thou and certainly, <laughs> ho- certainly holier than me. And it was, a, it was lovely to see uh, that sort of it was almost entertaining to see that public squirming. There is a delicious um, um, hypocrisy, perhaps. There's certainly a contradiction uh, in in doing this. But, you know, I I think most Canadians, you know, like, you know, me and my mates at the Legion, we we don't know what to do. We don't know what we're supposed to do. It's it's not easy. You know, Canada's contribution to the global warming some people call it a crisis, and that's certainly defensible. But Canada's contribution to the global warming change is, is, is very low. It's, it's like about 2%, I think. Um, and uh, I, Canada's, I think individually, we are a problem because per capita, we produce a lot of this, a lot of the trouble, probably more than any other country in the world. But as a country as a whole, we're way down at the bottom. And um, but that means we have to show leadership and we have to we have to do things. You know, we've we've got rid of plastic bags. That wasn't so hard. Uh, we're going to get rid of the, you know, the one use plastic straws. I think that'll be pretty easy. But there's lots of little things uh, that we can be doing and we can stop buying um we can stop buying cold beer. You know, the liquor stores have those giant walk-in <laughs> freezers that, are, you know, the, the huge things. And you go in and they use a lot of fossil fuels to keep them cold. And we go in and we buy a case of, uh, you know, a nice 24 case of cold beer. And we take it home and it's warmed up and we stick it back in the fridge again. So maybe we should just buy warm beer and cool it down once. And maybe we can do that and a hundred other things. And as an, as an, as an accumulation, maybe that would have an effect. They're cold. I, I, that's a new solution. I hadn't heard, Mike, but it actually makes sense. Cold. Get your beer warm and then cool it yourself. And for context, by the way, as Michael <laughs> mentioned, <laughs> we have uh, Canada emits about 700 million tons of carbon dioxide 
a year, um, whereas we're globally, um, the world emits about 50 billion. So uh, that gives you some sense of scope and size. Um, I wanted to ask the, the Western Orion, if you'll allow me to kind of characterize you as a Western Canadian. Um, I can't help but watch this and think this, this site is off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's in Atlantic Canada. That is typically a very vote rich area for the liberal government. Um, and I'm sure they want to keep it that way, which probably played into this decision, even if we don't want to acknowledge it. Um, if this was in Alberta, I don't see this getting a green light. Um, Ryan, would you, do you have the same suspicion or am I just being a bit too politically crass? I, I really couldn't tell you. I, I don't know. Um, we, 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 I mean, we, we saw the federal government buy a giant trans mountain pipeline True. to build across BC in order to, I mean, maybe make Albertans happy, but otherwise just because I guess they thought it was the right thing to do, uh, regardless. So I, I, I'd be a little reluctant to say that because we did see that happen. And they, the, this, this Trudeau government has done things, uh, repeatedly that have helped the oil industry, regardless of where they, they are in the budget. I mean, even though they did bow to one of the NDP demands that they live up to that promise to remove some oil subsidies for the big companies, there's still tons of subsidies flowing, uh, a lot of money flowing towards the oil industry's carbon capture solution. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we would have seen it regardless of politics, but that's just me. You, you think better of them than... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, I am a little bit of an eternal optimist. It's my problem. <laughs> and Michael, we're getting a lot of um, contact. The, the warm beer blasphemy is what I'm getting texted to me right now in the text. Board, so people are... <laughs> People are reacting very strong in your suggestion, but I do think it's a good point, right? Is I think individuals, you hear things like nine billion climate plan and ton carbon per tons and, you know, this sort of, and it's like, it just feels very like difficult to touch as individuals. Um, and how do we, and I think that's what governments need to do to, to get, I've got, we got about 10 seconds to you quickly if you want to jump in there. Yes. In my defense, uh, my ethnic root is of course, British and warm beer. Uh, I just, uh, bring it, bring it on. Michael, I'm kind of with you. I'm sorry. A warm ale can be just right if it's the right beer. What is happening on the show today? Oh, my God. Warm beer. Jeez. Okay. Well, um, has the pandemic made you meaner at work? A new study says, yeah. We'll unpack that after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, the show where we unpack the five biggest stories of the week. And we're in the back end, which is my favorite, where we always have a little bit of fun with our panel. Today joining me is Ryan Price, news director and afternoon drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C., and Michael Cook. He's the chair of Canada's Journalists for Human Rights and the former editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. So, as I mentioned, there's a new research out of the University of Guelph that suggests anxiety about the pandemic has led to unethical behaviors in the workplace. Now, the study's authors say it shows workers are becoming more self-interested. Dr. Lori Barkley said these unethical acts that are being conducted, you know, are having impacts on the workplace. It's also a result of the remote office. This is some of the things she said they've been seeing. People clocking out at two, not working a full eight hours. So drinking's a big thing with wine in the mug. I can even detest that I was in a meeting and had wine in my clear glass and not realizing it. But, you know, it happens. <laughs> so to, as the panel had dis- was discussing the prevalence and benefits of warm beer earlier, um, 
I would, I would go to, to you both, and maybe I'll go to Ryan first with his laugh there. Um, do you <laughs> have you noticed post pandemic as we kind of slowly reenter the workplace? Have people been a little more like flex at work? Have they been like you know? Are we seeing are you seeing more boozing in your office? I know you're on air with your office colleagues listening, but um, <laughs> you know I will say yesterday I had a long day and was running around a bunch, so I ended up taking my shoes off and running around the office. There I did not have a glass of wine, but I've been known to do so after hours. But I mean, Ryan, have you noticed people being meaner or changing their behavior or less ethical? Do you think this is a real thing? Well, I, I do to a point. I do feel like if you're working at home and you're unsupervised, it's pretty easy to take that extra few minutes here to go pop some laundry in or, I don't know, do anything else when you're not being supervised. And to an extent, I feel like people in the office would do these things, too. They just present differently. Maybe you were actually on your web browser, I don't know, Googling random things or doing online shopping or doing something that wasn't actual work even though you happen to be in the office i kind of feel like that's just part of the work environment is sometimes people take a little bit of time to themselves stealing that time and other times it's busy and you and you step things up so um but it, it certainly probably has been a bit easier to do uh, i don't know about the drinking i don't think any of us have been drinking even a nice <laughs> cascale that's at cellar temperature you know <laughs> It's not necessarily warm. It's cellar temperature that beer that you get in the in the Cascale at the pub. I love the I love the uh, the good uh, the good professor the good Guelph professor's line uh, wine in the mug. I'm I'm, I'm that's going to be the title of my autobiography. Wine in the mug. <laughs> my life in newspapers by Michael Cook. I love that. But Michael, I mean, you worked in newspapers like all you know the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and at the, at the highest echelons, actually. Um, do you? You probably saw some interesting behavior there. Do you think that the pandemic would have made it worse, or is this just stuff that was already happening? It's been a miracle to me that, that, that all businesses seem to be able to function without people going to the office. I, I would have said that was impossible, certainly in newsrooms, because journalists, not in my opinion, not only just needed management, they needed supervision. That turned out to be dead wrong. Um, but I think uh, you know the, the pandemic has brought out some of the best in, in human behavior, particularly in our healthcare uh, uh, doctors and nurses, and it's also you know brought out some of the worst. It's it's interesting, isn't it? How how when you look at the data, the self-employed seem to be immune from COVID, um, which is both funny and probably true. But but the percentage of cheaters and lazy people, you know, who book off sick and lie to the boss. I think that's probably increased a little bit because of COVID. You know, the borderline slackers, uh, you know, step across that line because they're, they can do without being caught. Uh, so they and, and, and if they do, you know, stay home, don't go to the office, etc., they feel good because they are allowed to think, probably because of the tyranny of the HR department, they're allowed to think that they're behaving responsibly towards everybody else. So COVID behavior, I think, reveals many things. And, um, you know, it, it reveals it's a political statement, as we've seen from wear a mask, don't wear a mask. And, and, and the quite uh, uh, angry uh, people on Twitter going crazy on, on mask wearing or not mask wearing. So COVID has revealed so much uh, about the people that we work with and that we love. But is it getting worse? I don't think so. It's, it's, it's human behavior. 
So it was already there. If you were drinking at work, yeah. you were already drinking. Uh, to yeah. be fair, I definitely had a really tough meeting one day, and I remember this. Walked out of the meeting, went to the fridge at the office because we keep wine there for after hours, poured myself a glass, and had a drink at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I definitely was there before. I needed the, uh, I needed the boost. So I want to get this to the last story because I think it's hilarious and also relatively cool. The U.K. Post Office is hiring... Uh, new job candidates and the winning candidate will spend five months on an Antarctic island surrounded by a handful of colleagues and thousands of penguins. So what basically they're hired to do is they would man a shop. There's a, um, there's a post office, there's a museum. Um, and part of your job is not only to, you know, man the store. Um, you also have to count the penguins and their eggs. Um, the monthly salary is between 2000 Canadian to 3000 Canadian approximately per calendar month. Um, so there's some less elegant parts of the job, I should say, including um, scrubbing guano, also known as penguin feces, off rocks to make sure it doesn't get taken to the museum. Um, sometimes the, the water has to be trucked in or, or boated in. And sometimes if it comes to come in, you have to boil your own water. So it's not the most elegant of jobs. But I think this sounds really cool. Um, Ryan, dream job or nightmare? You know, over the last two years of living through this pandemic and all of the emotional turmoil and stress it's caused, I have frequently thought I would like to leave everything and just run away into the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> this seems like a way I could get paid to do that. A little colder, but the penguins are cool. So you're, te- you're team penguin. I, w- I I'm would team totally penguins. apply for the job. I mean, I'd have to figure out what to do with all my clothes. I guess it wouldn't matter. But, Michael, <laughs> um, are you are you a fan of the of the penguin? Would you Would you apply for this job to run... The UK Post Office Museum on the Antarctic Peninsula. Ryan, I think you might be onto something. If if uh, and there's some merit in taking that job. If those five months served as some kind of digital detox time, yeah. I think I think Twitter would reach you down there. So, uh, and you'd exhaust Netflix in a month. Look, I, I spent a little bit of time in the uh, down there uh, checking out the health of glaciers, actually, and um, I can tell you that I, you know, penguins don't smell, but their poop is the worst smelling. <laughs> of any living creature and, un- and 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 unlike you know pigs and the other critters they, they they let the poop pile up where they live and where they love oh. so the intense cold is supposed to smother all smells but you know what it doesn't so i would say nightmare well now i've got new information to base my decision on so i might take it back <laughs> so you're no longer into the i thought you were into the penguins right so you're now you're a fair weather friend to these flightless birds well, I didn't have that critical piece of information. <laughs> Do we have time to ask uh, Ryan a quick question about the West Coast politics, where we have uh, a couple of Tory hopefuls out there this weekend, Mr. Palyavar and uh, you? You have we have about others. thirty seconds, Michael, and yeah. then we got to wrap it up. So thirty it, seconds it, it, to both of you. Okay, is, is it the case of rent the small room and fill it? Is it the Mulroney uh, 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 tactic, or is it real that uh, uh, Mr. Palyavar is doing good in BC? I, I would say he is. I think there's an audience for for what he's selling here, and we've certainly seen that demonstrated over the last uh, little while. I think that there's there's a there's a lack of any kind of conservative presence here, particularly on the island. But there certainly are people who are looking for something to grab onto and haven't had it yet. I, I'd say that's not uh, not completely far fetched to think he might be selling something that people are interested in for sure. All right, we've got to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for that, and Michael, for that last salvo. Six topics this week. You get an extra bang for your buck. Thank you, um, Ryan and Michael, for coming on the show. Thank you, Nick and Hannah. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I'll see you in two weeks because next week is a holiday. Have a great Friday.